in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with today's talk by Jason Smith on the newest developments and tree health issues in the state of Florida and beyond. It was originally presented at the 2015 International Conference in Orlando, Florida. All right. Good morning. Hopefully, uh, those of you that said you weren't awake will... Uh perk up a little bit. Got some very exciting things to talk about here and um, going to try to scare everybody really bad. Uh, that's what I try to do at most talks, but um, we'll, see, we'll see how that goes. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm going to give you basically an update on some of the current research uh, that we're doing in Florida focused on some emerging tree health issues. Although most of the issues I'm talking about have, um, you know, national significance because they're, they're, problems that could potentially affect and are affecting other parts of the country. So um, it's although it's somewhat specific to Florida, it's not not completely. Uh, so and if anybody has any questions that don't get addressed during this talk, feel free to contact me when you go back home. My email address is at the bottom. I'm pretty easy to find and I'd be happy to help you out if I can. OK. So as you know, Florida is a very diverse state uh, that one of the issues that we deal with here is particularly difficult. I mean, I'm sure the arborists that are in here that work in Florida know this, but if you're doing anything on a statewide level, uh, there's so much diversity in terms of the, the host species that we're dealing with, the environmental conditions we're dealing with, the soils, so on and so forth, that it's a, it's a really uh, complicated uh, place to work. I mean, for, for one thing, most of the, the plants that are sold in nurseries up in our area are produced down here in this area and they are a lot of the times they're the species that are being grown uh, in nurseries down here are completely inappropriate to be planted uh, two or three zones away to the north and so that's one of the issues that we're dealing with the other thing is because of Florida being a peninsula because of our our uh, abundant uh, tra traffic from in and out of the state and the uh, the, the, the large amount of cargo that we get from various places, we're dealing with a lot of introduced and, and invasive pests and diseases, and that's a big thing that, that I'm dealing with and I'll be talking about here in a minute. The other thing is, I mean, I, the last presentation was great dealing with the general stuff, and, and in fact, it was, that was really, really a nice uh, summary of the diagnostic process. But one of the other things that people tend to forget about is, is that, you know, um, the other thing about the, the, that we're dealing with in Florida is that our, our tree species are you know, uniquely adapted to, to the peninsula of Florida. So even species that are found other places, they're not really the same. And so provenance is crucial. And we're seeing this a lot where nurseries are, you know, are in Florida are really struggling to produce enough plant material to, to meet the need right now because we had a major, you know, reduction in the amount of production for, during the recession. So now we have a lot of, a lot of new development happening. New trees are being needed for various projects. And so I've, I've talked to landscape contractors and, and architects who are trying to get material and 
they're really, they're really scrounging and they're having to get material from far away in some cases. So when they're doing this, we have to be concerned that, you know, they're not bringing in red maple that are adapted to, say, the, the mid-south and bringing it and planting it in South Florida. Obviously, that would be a very, um, you know, bad mistake to make, and I think that's happening quite a bit. Uh, so the other thing that we, we're dealing with quite a bit in Florida, of course, is that people build houses and they expect the native trees that are as part of the forest where their houses were built to, to, to succeed and do well. And so, uh, obviously, that is you know pretty uh, pretty tall order to ask uh, longleaf pine, for example, that's typically growing with a you know a, a native understory. It has you know very acidic soil, um, well drained acidic soil, and then put houses in that forest, start irrigating it, putting a lawn in, putting lime on the lawn in some cases, you know, doing all these things that we do using high pH irrigation water and expecting the, the trees to to continue to be happy. And so we see it all over the the peninsula where we see these chlorotic um, pines that are adapted to low pH, you know, natural conditions are now uh, having to deal with the urban conditions and they start declining. And so I get called in because they're starting to get attacked by things like pitch canker or, you know, other insect and disease issues. And, and people assume that that's the primary problem when actually, actually the primary problem, of course, is that they're just, they're, they're not in, in, a, in a, uh, a state where they can actually thrive and, and do well. So the other thing, and, I, and this was covered quite well last in the last presentation, but the disease triangle is very, very important. When we're thinking about not only diagnostics, but also management, we have to look at the disease triangle and think about, you know, what is the weak component? What is the, what is the part that we can actually do something about? And as, as was pointed out earlier, you know, in the very early stages of planning, we can, you know, we can make everything as ideal as possible by, put, you know, choosing the right species and all those things. But, but oftentimes we're dealing with management long after, you know, the installation process. We have to come up with a, a way to figure out how, you know, how to, how to manage these issues. Sometimes we're targeting the pathogen directly by using, you know, fungicides and things like that or biocontrol. Uh, other times we're, we're maybe uh, doing something to modify the host. Maybe if we can't change the species, we can change the vigor of the species by fertilizing it or we can, you know, do other things to cultural practices to affect the, the vigor and, and stress, reduce the stress in the host. The other one, of course, is the environment. And, you know, that's the big one. Uh, and, and particularly in urban landscapes, landscapes that you guys are dealing with, you know, we, we have to figure out ways to, to make sure that we're not creating conducive conditions for disease to occur, okay? So uh, the other thing I wanted to point out with this, the reason my triangle is, is so uh, non-equilateral here is, a, is because really when you think about trees and their longevity and, and, and the way they develop over time, they're exposed to so many different things over that, that long period of time that makes, makes the environment a particularly important component. And I also wanted to point that out. <clears throat> so... Florida is uh, already dealing with many invasive pests and disease issues, emerging problems that are uh, devastating lots of different tree species. But we also need to be aware of the fact that there are a lot of organisms that are yet to get, to get here or into other states for that matter that we need to be concerned about. One, about, one of those is the emerald ash borer. I'm sure you've heard about it. There's lots of um, companies in, in the trade show that are you know, talking about products that they have to protect, preventatively protect trees uh, from the emerald ash borer. This organism is native to Asia and is devastating fraxinous species all over North America. 
It is as close as North Georgia. It's actually in the Atlanta area now, getting established quite well. It's basically one truckload away from Florida. It's one, you know, one person driving down the road that wants to bring firewood to Florida to go camping or whatever, and, and it'll get here. Uh, we have Oakwilt, which is not in Florida. It's in Texas. So those of you that are in Texas know quite a lot, quite about Oakwilt, I'm sure. It's in, in a lot of other states, but it's yet to be um, reported from Florida. <clears throat> we're quite concerned about it because, of course, live oak is highly susceptible and could be impacted significantly if it were to get here. We have the gold-spotted oak borer that called GSOB is, is what the people in California call this. It's affecting live oaks in Southern California. Could very well be a problem here. Again, one truckload away, some, you know, one, dri one driver coming down I-10 from, from the West could bring this to the state. The Asian longhorn beetle, which has been affecting trees in places like Boston and Chicago, and could very well be a problem here as well. It has a very wide host range, and um, we're very concerned about it. We have thousand cankers disease, sudden oak death, and the list goes on and on. And so it's important that arborists pay close attention to these organisms that you may not necessarily be familiar with, but are causing problems in other parts of, this, parts of the country or in other locations, because you are the, 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 the diagnosticians who are probably going to come in contact with these first. Many, many times the first reports of, organi of new organisms, new diseases, are the result of a, you know, an astute arborist who sees a problem and recognizes it as something different. And so it's very important that you, you know, become familiar, familiar with these things that aren't necessarily here yet. Yet, but it should be on your radar screen because they very well may very well be here soon. Uh, there's others I could talk about, like foamy bark canker disease and, and things you may not have heard, heard about yet. Um, if you have any specific questions, I just want to point out a couple resources here real quickly. Um, if you have any specific questions, we have a a forum where, that um, involves Yuri Holzer, who's an entomologist, myself, Eileen Bus, who works on other insect pests, and also Lyle Bus got cut off at the bottom. But we basically have an online forum where you can post photos and pictures, and we are happy to answer questions. And this is open to the public, anybody who wants to use it. And it's essentially develop, developed into kind of a little resource, you know, an online uh, encyclopedia, if you will, because the idea would be that you could search this for various topics and see what, you know, how these have been covered and discussed in the past. And so, um, feel free to use this resource if you'd like. Okay, so the first disease I'm going to talk about, the first, the first in my title, which you'll see probably in a moment here why I'm calling it a Trojan horse and an ambrosia beetle, is, is laurel wilt. Um, this is an exotic invasive uh, disease that's been uh, impacting forests in the southeastern U.S. since about 2000, 2002. This is a, a red bay forest in southeast Georgia that was devastated by laurel wilt. And this damage occurred over about 18 to 20 months. And so the, the, the disease is incredibly rapid. It's probably one of the most aggressive tree diseases ever recorded. Uh, it can kill mature trees within about oh, three to four weeks time under ideal conditions. And we see between 95 to 99% mortality of the red bay and related species uh, within the first three to four years of this disease showing up in a forest. So it's incredibly uh, devastating. Uh, this, this disease, like many, has gotten here by way, most likely by way of, of solid wood packing material that's, that accompanies products that are on ships. This is the Pacific Basin, and we have ships like this one right here, you know, full of cargo containers coming in. You know, they're, they're coming to our ports daily. And as you may have heard, Florida is uh, poised to become uh, much uh, more important in this process because both the ports of Jacksonville and Miami are uh, scheduled to be uh, greatly enlarged uh, or <laughs> made larger, and um, it's going to allow for far more uh, uh, ship traffic. And in fact, some of these larger freight freighters that are coming from Asia are now going to be able to come directly to Florida by way of the Panama Canal. So we're very concerned about this. But most likely that's how the, the laurel wilt disease got here. 
And uh, and it's really this is a problem that continues to increase over time. We, we're seeing uh, just a massive increase in the number of introduced pests and diseases, particularly in countries that have major uh, trade uh, imbalances like, like the United States and the United Kingdom. And so there's actually this little study that was done back uh, in 2014 that shows that there's a very close relationship, a positive correlation between GDP and the number of reported pests. You can see the U.S. and the U.K. far above lots of other countries like Brazil and China that have um, that also have you know a lot of trade. The other thing is you can see the number of reported pests versus forested area is is, is um, really disproportionately much higher in the U.S. and the U.K. versus places like Brazil and China. Again, because we depend on international trade, China is not doing a lot of import, importing from other countries like we are. Nor is Brazil. So Laurel Wilt has been doing this to the native Persea and closely related species in the Laurisea since 2002. It is an, uh, a, a really a very interesting biology. I wish I had time just to talk about all the details of this, but it's an ambrosia beetle. This is an ambrosia beetle. It's very small. It's smaller than, than Lincoln's nose on a penny. It, it, it carries this fungal symbiont, Raphaela lyricola, in specialized structures that are near its mouth part. What's very interesting about this, we've done some genetic studies and have found that both the fungus and the beetle are genetically identical in terms of their population. So the beetle, everywhere we've collected it from the southeastern U.S., is genetically identical. There's been no variation at all. It reproduces asexually. Um, And then uh, there's also no genetic variation in the fungus. So when you think about the impact that this has had and you realize that there's been no genetic variation in the pathogen or the the, the vector, it's pretty, pretty amazing, actually, biologically. Ambrosia beetles are typically harmless. Typically, they're boring into the sapwood of trees that are already dead and dying. This particular one carries this fungus that should be a saprophyte. It should just be the fungal symbiont that the beetle uh, basically farms or cultivates in these tunnels. And it lays its eggs in here, and the eggs hatch, and they carry the fungus out of the tree whenever they emerge as adults. But in this case, uh, this is very different. Laurel wilt is very, very different because the fungus is extremely virulent, killing the trees very quickly. And we think it's really because the beetles have changed their behavior when they came to North America from Asia. And it's, it's thought that they're now, you know, the fact that they're attracted to live trees means that they're taking the fungus to a, a potentially susceptible host. Whereas in their native environment, it seems that they mo- mostly bore into trees that are already dead, die, dying, weakened, things like that. So <clears throat> typically they're thought of as relatively harmless, but this one is obviously a major uh, exception to that. So the, the basic disease cycle is that the beetles are attracted to healthy trees. They bore into the trees. The fungus uh, is deposited into the vascular tissue, into the xylem. It very rapidly co- induces wilt in the tree, and this is due to the tree overreacting to the presence of the fungus. The, so the trees are essentially trying to defend themselves, and in the process, they, they wilt and die very, very quickly. The beetles then bore into the tree in mass, and they lay their eggs in the tree, and that's when they cultivate the fungus in their little, their little galleries. And, and um, one single tree can produce thousands of beetles, you know, in one year. It's, it's, it's quite efficient. So the known host range continues to expand. Uh, initially, it was just red bay and related species, swamp bay, the native per se is, but now we know that there are many, many different species, including avocado, uh, cultivated trees like camphor tree, sassafras, and now the disease is spreading independently and sassafras continues to move north and west. Uh, California bay laurel is highly susceptible, so if, if this gets to California, it could be very devastating to, to, the, to the, the bay laurel forests in California. Uh, as well as the avocado production. Uh, The bay that you cook with, European bay laurel, is highly susceptible. Several critically endangered species like gulf lycaria and pond spice, which have very, very limited distributions in Florida, 
potentially could go extinct from this disease. And now we know that the Mexican red bay is highly susceptible. So the impact of this disease in Central Mexico, Central America could be very, very significant. And we're, we're starting to look at that more uh, now. <clears throat> the disease has spread very rapidly from its initial introduction site near uh, Savannah, Georgia in 2002. It's now found as far west as East Texas, uh, northern Louisiana. There's some more new counties up here in South Carolina now. It just it nearly has completely covered Florida. And interestingly, these introductions up here are in sassafras. So this, this whole outbreak in Alabama is in sassafras for the most part, really very little red bay in that area. So we think that it's going to continue moving north in sassafras, and it seems that the beetle has quite a bit of cold tolerance. So it could very well get all the way into the Midwest and potentially New England. So this, uh, this disease is the first known vascular wilt disease that's vectored by an ambrosia beetle. The fungus is actually in the same uh, order and closely related to the pathogen that causes Dutch elm disease. So Ophiosoma nova omai, the, the causal agent in Dutch elm disease, is a close relative of this pathogen. Uh, we've done some phylogenetic studies of Raphaela lyricola, and what's interesting is that the, the pathogen, Raphaela lyricola, that causes laurel wilt is actually, it's right here, is actually um, really not related to very many other pathogens. All the other fungi that we've looked at in this group tend to be saprophytes, they're not pathogens. So it's quite, quite interesting as how this thing got, got to be so virulent, and we're, we're starting to look at sort of the evolution of that more. And so we've, we've published a paper uh, last year in fungal biology on this. And, and we've also developed a molecular diagnostic assay for anybody who's interested in diagnostics. Because this fungus is so closely related to other fungi that are, uh, that are very little known, the diagnostic process is somewhat uh, nuanced. And so you really need to know what you're doing for molecular diagnostics to, to prove uh, this, that this disease is, is present in a new location. So if you're in another state and you want to know more about the diagnostic process, you can look this up in, in this plant disease paper we published or feel free to contact me. The other interesting thing about Laurel Wilt is it has now been uh, laterally transferred to eight additional ambrosia beetles. So initially it was associated with the initial vector that was introduced, but now the fungus has been moved by way of what we call mycocleptism. So these fungi are being picked up by other beetles and they're carrying it now. And so we're not sure what this means for the epidemic because now we can't really predict what's going to happen based on one vector. We have all these other beetles carrying it. So they might carry it to new hosts. They might allow it to move more efficiently, uh, persist in areas things like that, we're not sure. But the impact has been massive. There's been at least 500 million trees killed. We think that the the, 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 the impact from this is really unprecedented. When you think about the fact that it's one single genotype of a pathogen, okay, one strain has led to the death of half a billion trees in 10 years. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's really unknown in biology to have such massive impact from, from something that was unknown as a pathogen prior to 2002. And so it's impacting the Everglades. These are the Everglades tree islands that are being impacted. In some cases, over 80 to 90% of the tree canopy of the swamp bays are dying off rapidly in the Everglades. That could have you know, cascading ecological impacts. We know the Palamedes swallowtail, which is an obligate um, herbivore on uh, red bay and related species. Their, their populations are crashing. The butterfly may go extinct. The butterfly is the primary pollinator for the yellow-fringed orchid. And so you, know, you can see the radiating impacts of this thing. It's impacting avocado production. This is an avocado grove. The avocado, uh, we're now seeing these foci or, or, or infection centers in the avocado groves because we're getting root-to-root -root transmission by way of root grafts, much like oak wilt. So we see that one tree gets infected in a grove and then very rapidly it spreads through the grove. And that's exactly what you're seeing in the aerial photograph there. 
Avocado production, of course, in Florida is a big deal, but it's much, much bigger elsewhere. You know, there are other parts of the world where avocado is, you know, a staple food crop. So these other places like Mexico and Central America are very concerned about this because it could really, really wreak havoc on, on food production in other parts of the world. So how do we manage this thing? Well, disease management is, is, is somewhat limited at this point, but we know that some systemic fungicides like propiconazole can be used preventatively to protect you know, high-value trees. You can't do that in a forest, right? But we've been protecting. In fact, that's my former student, Don Spence, who uh, is doing a, a demonstration for my class for, uh, in a, on a red bay in front of our building, and we've been, ab- been able to keep that tree alive despite the fact that all the other ones around it have died. So um, we're pleased with that. Sanitation is also important. Don also did some, his, and his PhD work showed that chipping eliminates the beetle basically and the fungus can't survive in wood chips. So if you chip the, the, woods on, the wood on site, it's a good you know, sanitation practice and limits the local spread of the disease perhaps. And, and it's what we're suggesting people do um, you know, in, in urban situations. So we are also looking for resistance. We've got uh, trees. We've gone out into these forests that are devastated and looked for survivors. Uh, one of my, my uh, former PhD students has developed a, a method for identifying and propagating these trees, and we've now got about, oh, 300 individual clonal uh, selections that have been propagated from uh, throughout the range of, of laurel wilt, with, and some of them have shown a high degree of, of tolerance. So we're hopeful that those trees could be used for some restoration work. We've got a citizen science project involved where we're asking people to look for these survivor trees. So if you see any, you know, in, you know, in areas where every, all the other trees have died off, you know, let me know because we'd be interested in potentially uh, getting those into our program. Uh, just survivors, you know, just the survivors, yeah. So the idea would be we'd be able to go back to places like this and replant, you know, do some restoration work. We're not going to be able to replace 500 million trees probably very well, but we can at least keep it as a component, you know, keep the biodiversity um, pr- preserved and, you know, and, and, and provide some of the ser- services that th- these tree species provide. But again, the Laurace is widespread, and what, what's going to happen when it moves down here? You know, what's going to happen when it gets into the Caribbean? What's going to happen when it gets into potentially Australia, where avocado production is also big and there's a lot of other native Laurasee. There, there, we think that we're still at the tip of the iceberg on, on this in terms of the potential impacts. And, and it's just, it's really an incredible story when you think about the radiating effects, again, from this one single genotype that was completely off of anybody's radar screen prior to 2002. This was, I mean, APHIS, you know, the major agencies had no idea that this was a problem. Even when they first found it, nobody thought that this was going to be a big deal. Okay, so let me use, I have, what, about five minutes left? Yeah. So let me finish up. I went a little too long on the lower one. I got to talk about some other things. So we'll talk about pine diseases real quickly. You know, pines are a staple in Florida landscapes, as you know, in much of the southeast. What's that? 15. That's better. Okay. Uh, Pines are a staple in Florida landscapes. Um, We are doing a lot of work with pine diseases here in Florida. Sorry about that. I got to fix that. There we go. Um... They don't tolerate high pH well. Oftentimes they're planted in situations where they're not really likely to succeed. We see a lot of urban pines that look bad because they were, they were planted poorly, because they were put in the wrong situations, because they are managed wrong. And I'm trying to educate people about this. Really, one of the big things is we need to plant them in small sizes. Pines do not like to be root-bound. And we see that many of our landscape-planted pines are in containers that where they get poor, poorly developed root systems, and they're never going to come out of that. You might as well throw them away. Literally, just throw them away. There's no use in planting them. Foresters who are growing pines for a, for a living to make wood do not plant large pine trees. They plant little tiny seedlings. 
and, and they, will, they will always do better than the ones that are in containers. So, so keep that in mind. They should be planted in groups with native ground covers. Don't try to grow turf under pines. It's, it, it, turf and pines don't do real well together. And, and there's lots of different reasons for that. But, but I suggest that you do, you know, ground covers with, you know, maybe pine straw or saw palmettos. You know, try to replicate what happens in nature. You know, you see a lot of healthy pines in nature in Florida, and we should try to replicate that. So there are some common diseases in Florida, like pitch canker that flare up every few years. We have these big outbreaks. Pitch canker is caused by the fungus Fusarium cercinatum. Um, and, and it mostly affects the terminal shoots on the trees. And we get trees that look like this. I'm sure you've all see, seen pines that look like this. Very common in the urban landscape because this particular disease affects trees that are stressed and it also affects trees that have been fertilized. There's a very close association between fertilization and pitch canker. And I'm going to be talking more about this here in a minute. But the previous speaker mentioned the fact that not all tree species behave the same way when it comes to fertilizers. And we know that our native pines are very different in the way they use fertilizers. So loblolly pine is a very, uh, a very, very efficient use, or non-efficient user of nitrogen. So when you apply nitrogen to loblolly pine, it uses it and grows more. It pr produces a lot more biomass very quickly. And that's good if you're trying to, you know, grow trees for timber. Slash pine, on the other hand, which is the one that we mostly plant in landscapes, particularly in this part of Florida and South Florida, and longleaf pine for that matter, are very, very, very efficient nitrogen users because they come from situations where they don't have a lot of nitrogen, so they have to be very efficient with it. So you can apply a lot of nitrogen to slash pines, and they don't grow much more. You don't get a significant increase in growth. You don't, and, and, and in fact, what you end up with is pitch canker and other diseases. So we recommend that with, with our native pines, there really should be no fertilization at all. And in fact, you're, in, you're inviting problems if you fertilize them. And not only are you going to get things like pitch canker, but you increase the likelihood of scale insects, you increase the likelihood of aphids, you increase the likelihood of all these other organisms that, that feed on plants that have, you know, that are rich in nitrogen or, you know, good to, and they taste good to them, right? So one, one issue that we've seen happen as a result of this is diplodia die back on slash pine. This is my Yankee fungus that went con country because typically diplodia on pine has been a problem in the Midwest or the Northeast. It has historically not been a problem on pines in Florida. In fact, there's, vir there's virtually no information at all on diplodia being a problem on slash pine at all in the Southeast. But in 2012, we started to seeing this really massive dieback and mortality here around the Orlando area, in particular along highways. Um, initially, we recovered these four fungi that are in this diplodia complex, but the, the first two are, are the ones that are really involved in diplodia outbreaks in other parts of the world. And it was really perplexing because we almost never see these in Florida. So what, what was going on? Typically, these fungi remain latent as endophytes, and then they take advantage of trees that are stressed and become canker organisms on, on the host. Well, when we started looking at, these, at this site, we found out, well, first of all, the trees were planted at, at incredibly high densities, much, much higher than it, the site probably would, would support, even under ideal scenarios, let alone when the trees are stressed. On top of that, there was, uh, well, let's just say somebody made a major mistake in terms of uh, applying nitrogen, and they, they applied far, far, far more fertilizer than these trees should have ever seen. And this was in, these were primarily in, in installations of landscape uh, pines along highways. They were planted as buffers, okay? So just like you're seeing down here on the lower right. So all the trees uniformly in 2012 were just dying back and having, you know, brown foliage and, and shoot death. All, I mean, thousands and thousands of trees. 
And when it turns out, we, we looked at the fertilizer, how much fertilizer was it being applied, and we saw that they were applying a pound of fertilizer per tree every, uh, every year for four years. So they're putting up basically a pile of fertilizer at the bases of each of these trees. Most of them were three to five and seven gallon size trees planted out. So, you know, just ridiculously high levels of fertilizer. And in fact, we did some analysis of the tissue and, and we, we divided the sites up into healthy, medium disease level and high disease level. And there was a very nice you know, relationship showing us that they were having over 2.25% nitrogen. That is more than double the highest levels that we typically see in, 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 in forestry situations where slash pine are being grown for, for forestry, you know, for, in forestry applications. So we know that this is far, far above what, what, what is typically reported in slash pine. And, and in fact, one of the, the silviculturalist that I work with said he's never seen levels this high in slash pine before. So clearly this is what's happening probably on a, quite a large scale. I know a lot of landscape op operators think that, oh, you know, a little bit of fertilizer will make the trees look good. More will make them look even better, right? You know, you, you, I'm sure there are people who do that. And, and that's, I think, what happened here. And so we ended up with this big outbreak where the dieback was occurring in the lower part of the crown and moving up. This is very different from pitch canker, right? Because I showed you pitch canker was the tips of the trees. This is coming from the bottom and moving up. And we'd see these massive, massive areas like this. And, and it really created quite a bit of alarm here in the Orlando area. The thing is, it continues to spread. And it's not just in Orlando anymore. So uh, I'll talk more about that here in a second. But the symptoms, we see these bleeding resin, resin, resinosis uh, occurring with cankers on the stems. And when you, when you scrape away the bark, you have clear you know, necrotic lesions. And it's usually starting not on the tips, but further back on the stems. And then it girdles the stem, and then the whole branch dies, basically, is what we see. Uh, we are doing a statewide survey because we're trying to evaluate kind of what are the characteristics of the sites that are being affected. So we're asking anybody who, who can help us with the survey. We have a website. You can get on there and, and um, take a look. But uh, basically, we, we think that this is much more widespread than, than it should be and, and that, that it's not just fertilization. I mean, it seems that the, the fertilization has enhanced the outbreak in some situations. We have plenty of situations where we know there has been no fertilization, yet we're seeing diplodia. So we're not sure why this is an emergency disease in Florida, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on because it's real, it really could impact our, one of our biggest resources in the state, which is our, our slash pine forests. Uh, so the survey is, you know, focused on, you know, trying to identify where this is a problem. We'd like to look at some of the various factors like stand age structure and other parameters that might influence the disease outbreak. And, and we're asking you guys to, and anybody who can help us identify potential sites to, to contact, contact us. So if you want, you know, just to summarize the difference between pitch canker and diplodia, pitch canker on the left starts with the tips, outer branches, terminal uh, portions of the tree and works its way inward. Diplodia starts low on the crown and works its way up. And uh, here you can see them side by side. Uh, this is pitch canker over here on the right, new growth. This is diplodia here. The new growth is still green, but the older growth is turning brown because there are lesions in the stem here, okay? So management, uh, you know, we're, we think that, you know, right now we're just suggesting that people chip and mulch the diseased trees right on site. Don't fertilize, obviously. If this is a temporary response to some, you know, uh, weather condition, then uh, it might be a temporary problem. So, you know, we don't know yet, but the fact that it, that it started in 2012 and we continue to see problems now and it's almost 2016, I'm not sure. This is this. I think this is something we really need to watch out for. Uh, obviously, better planting practices, you know, are important for pines in Florida. And I've been trying to promote, you know, changing the way we plant pines and changing the way we think about them. 
uh, and obviously purchasing only healthy nursery stock because this disease, like pitch canker, is, is latent in nursery plants, and so you can easily get nursery material that's already infected and you know, take it to a new location. Obviously, avoiding monocultures is another big one, and that, that should apply in urban forest situations. In general, we need to diversify and try to avoid you know, single, plant, single species plantings that cover large areas. Okay, so now I'm going to switch gears and talk about some oak problems of the last few minutes. Um, we've been dealing with several different uh, what I would call emerging or emergent oak disease issues in Florida in the last uh, five or six years or so. Uh, most of the most of the problems have been typical stress. You know, uh, when you have drought and then you have really wet years, oaks suffer, and we often see the common things like root rot, armillaria, ganoderma, hypoxylin, those typical things that that are just part of oak forests. That combined with the fact that a lot of people either plant oaks or live in forests that are comprised of oak mean that we just have a lot of interactions with these these oak health issues. But we have seen some things that are really what we consider to be unusual levels of mortality and particularly to live oak, which has been thought of as kind of a you know, bulletproof species in Florida that has really very few problems. And, and some of the problems that we've been seeing, uh, we believe to be uh, new and something that we need to be watching out for. So one of these is Diplodia. So I talked about Diplodia on pine, which is caused by Diplodia pinea and, and Diplodia scribiculata. But around 2010, we started seeing live oaks that had dieback and, bran and flag branches um, around the Jacksonville and Ocala areas in North Florida. And, uh, and now it's actually in well over, it's well over seven. It's actually more like 14 or 15 counties. But we, we would see these cankers and lesions all over the tree, little bleeding cankers, very, very typical of a Botryosphaeria type canker. Um, and we isolated Diplodia corticola and Diplodia corsivora. What was interesting is neither of these two fungi had ever been reported from uh, live oak before, and nor had they ever been reported from the southeastern United States. In fact, when we first recovered Diplodia corsivora, we thought that it was a new species, and we were in the process of describing this new species when a paper came out describing it from, from Tunisia, where it was causing problem on, uh, problem on oak trees in Tunisia. So uh, pretty interesting. And then around 2010, um, well, we also discovered corticula, and that's when we did pathogenicity tests and confirmed them as causal agents and published on that work. What's interesting is Diplodia corticula has been known to cause significant decline to cork oaks in Europe. So where uh, you probably have seen cork oaks before, but cork is super. The oak uh, produces very thick, you know, thick bark, which is removed from, from live trees. And it's a process that's sustainable, you know, if it's done right and the trees continue to grow and it doesn't kill the trees. But oftentimes it creates little wounds, and those wounds are now being colonized by Diplodia corticula and causing this decline in cork oak. Well, nobody knows for sure if it's introduced into Europe, but um, what's interesting is when we found it in Florida in 2010 for the first time, it was also being dis dis you know, discovered in California in 2010 for the first time ever on oaks, and it was affecting canyon live oak and coast live oak. <clears throat> and there it was associated with the gold-spotted oak borer and also with Phytophthora morum, the sudden oak death. So there was sort of this whole complex of things happening. But whereas in, in Florida it causes dieback and, and branch cankers, for the most part, in, Euro in, in Europe and in California, it causes main bowl canker. So the main trunk of the, trunks of these oak trees were getting lesions and, you know, in, in fact, uh, causing entire tree death. 
So we've published several papers on this and have described how to differentiate the two diplodia species. If anybody's interested, we have a, a paper in Plant Health Progress. But this is kind of what the fungi look like. They're big, black, fluffy things that most people throw away. Most plant pathologists ignore these because it's common to get diplodia species out of you know disease treats. But these are different. They're much more virulent, and they're not, not at all like the typical diplodias. These are inoculated oaks. This is actually turkey oak, or no, this is schumert oak, excuse me. We inoculate and make a little wound here, and within four to six weeks, we get lesions that go all the way down into the roots that will, that will girdle the trees and, in fact, kill, you know, kill young saplings. We did a test of over 33 different species of oaks and found that there's quite a variation in susceptibility. In fact, live oak is kind of in the middle. It's not the most susceptible. There are other oak species, some of the red oaks that are more susceptible uh, than, than live oak is. Um, but this is kind of what we see in the landscape, dieback, you know, flagging in the branches. And when you look closely, you see cankers, okay? And the cankers can occur on, on branches of various sizes. Sometimes there's, you'll see a little uh, dark, you know, sap coming out and sometimes sooty mold on them. But these branch cankers on live oaks were really kind of unprecedented in Florida and not something we typically see. This is kind of some old cankers that have started to heal up. Okay, you can see there's a little twig here and a lesion. But you get enough of this, it can make these live oaks look pretty ugly. And so uh, in California, uh, they get these bleeding cankers. And this is another new disease that's been associated with not only Diplodia corticula, but now several other organisms, including a new Geosmithia. So if you know about the thousand cankers disease, you know that Geosmithia is the causal agent of, of thousand cankers disease. Well, when they were doing a survey for the Diplodia in California, they found this other Geosmithia causing what they're calling a foamy bark uh, canker on live oaks in California. And a lot of these look similar. So that's why lab, you know, really lab testing is important for, for diagnostics because it's very difficult from the field to just say you got one or the other, you know. But it seems that we have a, a kind of a barrage of these different canker organisms affecting live oaks. And uh, we're not sure exactly what this means. But in California, of course, due to the stress from the drought, we're seeing that these things are really becoming more prevalent. So management. Well, one thing that we're suggesting here in Florida is to avoid cultivar live oaks, okay? I would suggest, and I'll say it right here in front of everybody, do not plant any more cathedral oaks, okay? We have enough. It's, it's, it's really a very, very poor selection because of the fact that it seems to be more susceptible to this as well as several insect pests. So I suggest that you just completely don't plant any more cathedrals. Try planting seedlings. You'll get, more, you'll get genetic diversity. You'll end up with, with, with better, healthier forests in the future. So... Um, if nothing else, go to other cultivars. Let's try to maybe select some other new, new, make some new selections. Prune out infected branches and sterilize tools. You know, this is kind of general stuff, things that you would do with any canker disease. Reducing stress if you can, but, you know, it's not always easy to do. Uh, if possible, treat gall wasps because we have a lot of gall wasps affecting these oaks that we think... Um, need to be treated as well um, because there's often the co-occurrence of gall wasps. So you've seen the little galls all over the cathedral live oaks. The inter the, there seems to be kind of an interaction between the trees that have a lot of that and then they get the diplodia canker. We haven't proven that those gall wasps are actually trans transferring the pathogen, but they certainly are stressing the trees and making them more, more uh, susceptible. Inspect nursery stock, making sure you don't get infected trees to begin with. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to talk about, this is the weed killer that has gone crazy uh, in, my, in, my, in my last couple of minutes, is, is metsulfuron methyl. Some of you are probably familiar with this, this pro product. This chemical has been used for quite a while. It was initially uh, trademarked and, produ and produced um, mostly uh, by uh, New Farm America as the product called Manor. It was also um, known as Mansion. And then in 2008, the patent ended, and it was then um, be started 
started to become picked up by other companies and you have all these other new products coming out all the time with metsulfuron methyl as the primary uh, active ingredient. There's a new product that came out just recently by Scott's. It's called Scott's Bonus for Southern Lawns or something like that that includes metsulfuron methyl. It's a broadleaf herbicide mostly used where St. Augustine turf is the dominant uh, turf type. It, uh, you know, has been used for a very, very long time, but prior to 2008, because it was so expensive, most people weren't using it. It was something that large operators, you know, people who manage golf courses, you know, large lands, commercial landscapes were using it. Now, because it's a lot cheaper, we have, you know, anybody with a backpack sprayer basically using this stuff. But what we're seeing is very acute uh, acute injury, typically in spring during the hot, uh, dry time, you know, in May, early June, before we start getting our summer rains, when people are doing their applications on the lawns, we get within two to four weeks fried up foliage, mostly on oaks, but also on ligustrums and other species. It's occurring about two to four weeks after application. You get this fry, almost overnight frying up of the foliage, and then you, if you scrape away the bark, you see patches of necrosis. I'll show you pictures here in a minute. This is basically what it looks like. Live oaks that are perfectly green, growing vigorously, healthy, happy trees, and within two to four weeks, bang, you have this massive damage. I have people calling me claiming they have oak, sudden oak death. We have, you know, we have oak wilt. We have something, something new. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, at this point, you know, it's, it's so widespread that I, I don't, you know, I don't even, I don't even have to look at it. I just ask, oh, did you, did you apply it with metsulfuron? Yep, sure enough every single time. And so we're seeing it over and over and over and over, always in these cultivated landscapes where you have, you know, healthy trees with often with mulch rings. Look at that nice, you know, weed-free lawn, very typical, two to four weeks. And then you see the patches of necrosis here. I'm almost done, just a couple minutes. And uh, you see the, the, what, what the trees look like. You know, sometimes you have partial necrosis. Sometimes you have the entire tree. And that's probably due to the, the amount of uptake. You have a lot of surface roots right under the surface of the turf, okay? Where, and, and especially when it's being irrigated, we know that most of those roots are right under the, right under the, right under the surface of the turf. The pro, this product, uh, the, the label says that it's, that it's uh, safe to use around trees and, shrub, tr- trees and shrubs. But it also says, do not plant trees and shrubs in soil that's been treated for at least a year. So um, it's pretty clear what's happening. Very, very widespread. We did a little study just to look at the sort of the, the variation in uh, the, the um, damage that we see from different levels of, of the rate on the late, because it gives you a wide range on the label. So we went from the low end to the high end, and we had damage all the way down to the lowest level rate when we applied it to the root zones of these, of these live oaks. And we did uh, elemental analysis from trees and showed that it does go up into the leaves and the roots, and it's in the affected trees that we think are being caused by or damaged by this. This is not unprecedented. You remember Imprelis, right? People that are from up north know about Imprelis and what happened with that. This is just, I think, another emerging issue very similar to Imprelis. So we're, you know, we're, we're doing what we can with it. It's been an uphill battle to get people to, um, to admit that this is the problem, but we think that we have enough evidence to, to really um, go forward. So we now have a, a, a new ma- a manuscript for a paper that's going to be coming out that's going to describe this soon. And uh, if you have any additional questions, feel free to contact me. That, um, there's my contact information. Thank you. And uh, hope you have a good rest of the meeting. This concludes Jason Smith's talk on the developments and health issues for trees in Florida and beyond. To learn more about causes, diagnosis, and management of tree health issues, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the General Diagnosis course, 
which is an, at the Online Learning Center or the online collection of CEU articles on tree diagnosis and treatment. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this talk, please visit the ISA online store and select Online CEU Quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.